Hey, it's Ross from Reversing Climate Change. I wanted to let you know that we have a new podcast called Carbon Removal Newsroom. It's short form, it's timely, and it's all about carbon removal. Whenever we see a good news story about carbon removal, or that should be about carbon removal, we're going to record a short episode about it with a rotating cast of guests. So please subscribe to Carbon Removal Newsroom, check it out in your podcast app of choice, and thank you so much for your support. You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast by Nori, the world's first carbon removal marketplace. Here are your hosts, Ross Kenyon and Christoph Jospin. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon here with Christoph Jospin and Paul Gamble is back. Producer Paul, Woo! welcome. We missed you. Yeah. Yeah, you did. <laughs> it's great to have you back. We're, we're in Seattle. We have an episode unlike any other that we have previously done. It is about the collision between art, data, and climate. Why don't you introduce our guest, Christoph? I'm super excited to do this episode. I hope you're excited too, listener. We had read a cross-cut article that featured her work and then dug a little further and started listening to these really cool musical pieces. And I don't want to explain it because I think Judy will be able to explain it much better than we can. So sitting across from us, we have Judy Tweet. She is a doctoral candidate at the University of Washington. She is a sonic musical person who takes climate data and transforms it into amazing pieces. And Judy, First of all, welcome. Welcome to Nori. Welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. And you very kindly listened to some of our shows before, so you know that we like to start off with people's story and their motivations. So how did you get to where you are today? Yeah. So thanks for having me on the podcast. It's great to be here chatting on this sunny morning with you about this. So um, my story, there's lots of ways to tell that, but I grew up in Tacoma, as I said earlier, in Tacoma, Washington. I'll say a little about my family background. On my mom's side, we're fifth-generation Washingtonians, and we're you know white settlers here and worked for several generations as loggers in the Olympic Peninsula in the timber industry. On my dad's side, farmers in southeastern South Dakota. So both sides of my family had pretty strong connections to land practices and land use and land management. But I grew up in a family of musicians. Most of my, my parents are um, music teachers and uh, had a lot of influence in music in my family, both through music education and also through sacred music. My family was Presbyterian and Lutheran, and we were involved in a lot of creation and production of church music. So that was part of the background of my life. And then growing up in uh, Western Washington, the best parts of my childhood were undeniably being outside in the summers in particular, um, and hiking in both the Cascades and the Olympics and swimming in the Puget Sound. And yes, I did swim <laughs> regularly in the cold waters of the Puget Sound. So um, that set a lot of my interest in the natural world. And I had a very circuitous route to where I'm at today. There's a very long version and a shorter version. We'll just start with the shorter version, and then if you want to ask more questions, we can get into the long version. But I decided in my late 20s to do a career shift, and I wanted to study or do work in environmental sciences, which was something I had been interested in when I was young. So this career shift brought me back to Tacoma. I took classes at Tacoma Community College for a couple years, math and physics. Just loved it more than I more than I realized I would, and uh, found my way into a doctoral program in atmospheric sciences at the University of Washington, 
which is not my current program now, but I started in this doctoral program because I wanted to study climate change. I've always liked thinking about big picture problems. So I finished my master's in atmospheric sciences studying these really cool giant waves in the atmosphere that connect tropical oceans to polar climate. So this is climate modeling work. Um, and that was really intellectually satisfying to me, but I was also paying a lot of attention to the discussion around climate change and then obviously the polarization. I was doing also a lot of outreach work in communities. And I taught my first undergraduate class for non-majors, non-science majors in global warming. And I realized that while teaching that class, you know, students were inundated with scientific data for 10 weeks. And by the end of it, they had, you know, a better grasp of the science, but also there was no way for them to really process on an emotional level what they were learning. And I saw that there was a deep craving for that. In surveys, students said they were feeling angry and hopeless. And so I started making soundtracks out of climate data. I said, maybe a different modality can help us access this information in a different way. And that led me through a series of events to designing a doctoral program where I can focus on this full time. And that's what I'm doing now. Wow. Kind of living the dream. <laughs> Ross, you got a question there? Yeah. Uh, well, how does one do this? Or actually maybe priming the audience just with letting them listen to this might be the best place to start. And then we can dive in from there. So mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to set this up real quick, but... I think we'll probably just splice in the actual uh, good audio version of this.
Judy, what was that? What did you sonically personify there? Yeah. So it's interesting that we played it first. I often say that playing a piece before talking about it is like showing a graph without any labels or axes or like the, the lines, like you don't actually know how to interpret it. Um, so I will do that for us now. So um, <laughs> what we were listening to is the satellite record of Arctic sea ice over the last 36 years. So satellites went up into orbit in the late 70s, and they've been monitoring the area of ice cover over the Arctic Ocean. And um, so if you look at that data, you see it going down in time. Now, importantly, this data is specifically like looking at, um, we call this the Arctic sea ice anomaly. So we basically want to see, is it above or below average? So this data set that I sonified and that you just listened to is like if you subtract the long-term average from every month of data, then you hear that up and down there. So, and you heard a couple different things going on. So this was written for a piano performer and the pianist playing that piece was Christina Lee. She's a local performing artist. Her left hand was playing those chords, bum, 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 bum. And visually, if you see the performance, you'll see that the left hand is kind of doing those four chords repeated over and over in the middle of the keyboard. And each chord represents a season. So you get, you hear this seasonal cycle and the location of the left hand and those chords on the keyboard represents about where that like long-term average is. And that's the only thing the left hand does is just repeats the seasonal cycle. The right hand is playing each note is one month of data. So there's three notes in the right hand for every chord in the left hand. And if you hear the right hand higher than the left hand, you know that that month sea ice was above average. And if you hear, and you can also see it in visual performance, if the right hand is crossed over and below the left hand, then in that month, sea ice was below its long-term average. So over the course of that piece, the right hand just is going down and down, not, you know, not monotonically, it goes up and down, but over time, it's continually going lower and lower until the last, you know, 15 years of the piece, it's continuously below, the right hand is crossed over the left hand, sea ice has been below its long-term average, uh, it's entered a new regime. So why bother doing it this way? Does it does it help people to understand it in a new way? I guess anecdotally, I don't know if you have more sophisticated data than that, but does this help people understand climate change or, or uh, address it in some new way? Mm-hmm. Well, again, going back to my experience teaching climate change for large lecture classes of undergraduates who, you know, wanted to understand it, but they weren't science majors, there is a real need to sort of be able to connect with the most clear and important data sets that I think of them as canonical data sets of climate change. And that is the satellite record of sea ice. That's the Keeling curve, which shows the change in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere since 1958, ice core records. These are things that show clear, undeniable evidence of climate change and that we need ways to connect with them that are more resonant because there's so much data in our lives. But how do we know which ones that stand above the rest and and kind of help us get a big picture, like long view understanding of how the climate is changing. And the sea ice record is one of those. Sea ice is important to me in particular. I mean, I've done research in the Arctic um, on icebreakers and seen it, but it's also important to us like globally, even if you don't live and are never going to go visit the Arctic Ocean, it acts like planetary sunblock for the whole planet. So as it's melting, 
the sunlight can penetrate into the dark blue ocean, you lose this like um, reflective polar cap. And so there's lots of stories to tell about the impacts of this loss of sea ice, but we don't really connect with them unless we have ways of having an emotional response to what the satellites and what the data is telling us. Yeah, I think it's really interesting talking about sea ice and thinking of the depth or thickness of it. Of course, in the wintertime, the sea ice grows, so you have this new ice, but you also have this old long-term ice, and we're losing that. And then we're also, it's getting much smaller, much more quickly. Can the satellites tell in terms of depth as well? Does that... Um, the satellites aren't able to tell very clearly how the sea ice thickness is changing. We, we have estimates of that from observations, in situ observations. And that's, you know, so from scientists who do research expeditions in the Arctic in the summertime in particular. And yes, the volume of ice and the thickness of ice is also dramatically decreasing. But that was not, you know, that's not portrayed in the piece that we just listened to. That piece is only showing the ice area. And this summer that I was up on a research expedition on a Canadian icebreaker, it was um, really interesting to hear the crew, the ship's crew, you know, talking about the loss of thick ice, that it was really easy to navigate through the Arctic Ocean now, and the thinner ice is just much easier to uh, navigate through. Well, your comments about trying to find an emotional connection to what is often an overwhelming amount of data it causes paralysis. Mm -hmm. I think if I wasn't doing Nori, I'd probably just ignore climate change stuff more or less. If I wasn't feeling like I was moving the needle at all on it, it'd be better to spend my time elsewhere, perhaps, unless I felt like I could move the needle somewhere else in this space. Mm -hmm. So I don't necessarily blame anyone for doing so. And then uh, it's just hard to, yeah, it's hard to move the needle. But generating a new kind of response seems good. And that's what we do with this podcast. We try to make it I don't know. Our tone, we try to do optimistic. They're solution-oriented. We try to bring a lot of humor into it. Sometimes it can be a bit of gallows humor, but more often than not, it's just regular style. I don't know. I Do, do you think that we're making a difference in any way? Ross, you need to show, don't tell. So come on, man. I'm, I'm, don't, don't just, I'm laying the don't playbook show out. Yeah. Yeah. Can, I, can I jump in here? When we were listening to that, I noticed, I think it was probably around a minute 45 into it, it went from a very, like, please sounding piece to all of a sudden the I guess what she's playing on her right hand just became very dissonant mm -hmm. with those chords. Mm -hmm. What did that represent? Mm -hmm. What was happening there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll answer that question and then we can come back to the other one about kind of hope and despair. I'm glad you picked up on that. So there are two different key changes in the piece and that's when you hear that increased dissonance. And those are reflecting when the ice starts to enter, you know, a different state regularly. So, um, and that's just based on statistical analysis showing whether or not the monthly difference from the long-term average is like a statistical abnormality. And so to show that transition, I used a key change first when like a few months of the year are statistical outliers. And then the second key change is when the majority of the months of the year are statistical outliers so that you can hear that, that shift as well. And I think that questions about people's response and, you know, it's e easy to feel completely overwhelmed is real. And that, you know, we don't know what the future will look like and we need to be able to talk about it more. And we need to be able to talk about it from different perspectives. The fact that people often do have a very strong emotional response that sometimes causes shutdown is 
largely because we really do deeply care about this issue and we have connections, maybe personal or family or otherwise, to the places that we love and we don't want to see them change. And so we need to be able to open up conversations that are, you know, below the extreme polarization that happens so often in media and have more open-ended conversations about this. And I think that bringing in more modalities, but, you know, bringing in music and doing new new forms of art, combining art with science to talk about the data can help create those kinds of conversational spaces, like the one we're having now where we're just approaching it from slightly different angles. One of the things that I really appreciate about those comments and also a comment that you made in the TED Talk that you gave in Seattle was that the idea or the hope here is that you're giving people hope, you're giving people agency. So can you explain that for me? How does that work? Well, a couple of things. So the theme of conversations of talking about climate change is something that's really we're hearing a lot about. Um, one of my favorite climate scientists, who's also a really world-renowned communicator of climate science, is Catherine Hayhoe. And she also just gave a TED Talk about having conversations about climate change, the need to do that. Um, and I think that in and of itself, to be able to sort of engage in this in conversation about climate change can be empowering. Partly because it, you know, initially can be difficult. The summer when I first started making soundtracks, before I had any idea that it would turn into what it is now, and it's just like, let me experiment and see if this works. I was also reading a lot of literature on science communication, and I was really moved by this book by a sociologist called um, Living in Denial, and her name will come to me as I'm talking about it. She works uh, in Oregon, and uh, she was working with a Norwegian community, very different kind of culture than in the U.S., strong um, civic engagement and strong connection to the outdoors. There was no denial of the science of climate change in this community. She was interviewing them during a, a very warm winter. And she noted that there was this conversational dead space when she would interview members of this community about climate change. And it was kind of for the reason you're saying, it's like, it can be so overwhelming. So that's a real, like addressing our collective inability to have real honest conversations about something that's, you know, unprecedented in human history is really important. We don't know exactly how, how to do this, but every kind of new approach is, you know, a really important experiment. <laughs> definitely. And in our small way, we definitely try to have voices on the podcast that like, we have plenty of more conventional environmental people who I'm sure are left of center relatively. And then we have, we've had conservative and libertarian guests on too, who also care about the environment and their approaches for doing so. And we try to give as good as we get. And we push back on people when we feel like we need to. But I always want to avoid whenever the like, let's, we should have a conversation about this comes up. I always think of, have you seen the the new Sasha Baron Cohen show? Who is America? No. Uh, did you ever watch Ali G or you ever watch any of those? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Well, then it might be shocking to start now, but uh, he, he mostly satirizes right-wing America in the show, but he has one character who's sort of this like very, very silly left-wing guy. Uh, and his whole thing is like having conversations with America, but the point of it is to talk to conservatives to show them how they're stupid. Mm. And like, I always wonder like, like how do you uh, actually have an egalitarian discussion between different ideologies that isn't patronizing. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we try and sometimes we may be unfair. There's definitely episodes of the podcast where I was like, I should have been like a little cooler about that one comment, but I had to get my, <laughs> my bit in. 
Um, mm. how, how have you done it? Do you feel like you've always been successful at it or is it just something that you're growing into? How do you do it? Mm-hmm. Well, there's lots of approaches to this. And my, I mean, I guess my answer to this comes not necessarily from making climate music, but from other experiences too. And reading the literature that a lot of our responses to really difficult issues, or a lot of our responses to hearing information about really difficult issues are very much dependent on whether or not we trust the person who we're talking to. And that we're extremely good at filtering and raising flags if we think this person doesn't fit in with my worldview or my identity. And so it's really important that you kind of pick and choose your conversations with people and that you really value relationship and that you honor where everybody's coming from and what their value systems are and recognize that there might be very different ways of approaching climate change from different value systems that still acknowledge that you know, it's something we have to adapt to and hopefully mitigate as soon as possible. I think it's important that we not try and change people's identities, but we try and recognize where there's areas of overlapping concern. I'm, so, I'm sorry. I'm clearly just setting Paul up here. I was trying to give him give him the podcaster's eyes, be like, it's your turn. <laughs> and here's your quarterly announcement about <laughs> a book that we think everyone should read. You read my eyes correctly. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I totally agree with you that it uh, comes down to like meeting people where their values are. We have mentioned this probably seven or eight times on the podcast before. So if you haven't, if you've been listening and you haven't yet read this book, what are you doing? Um, it's called <laughs> The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Do you know that book? I have not read it yet. Haidt is a moral foundations um, psychology researcher. Mm-hmm. And he has demonstrated through empirical study that humans, uh, whether no matter what culture they're from, no matter where they're from, tend to hold a set of values in differing levels of importance to them. And if you're not speaking to those values, then the people you're talking to aren't hearing you at all. And you could have a topic like climate change that could be spoken about in these different values in different ways. So the, let me let me see if I can get these right. God, you're so hard on yourself. You don't have to do this. <laughs> no, uh, Lorraine gave me a great mnemonic uh, that I'm trying to remember now. I think it's, it's CS Fall. So it's caring, sanctity, fairness, authority, liberty, and... Ah, so close. Every time I get five out of six. Um, so speaking to people about climate change, you could talk to them about the fairness of um, what are we doing to future generations? Mm-hmm. You could talk to them about the sanctity, like how are we impacting the earth that we're all a part of? Mm-hmm. And, and those those messages reach different people in different ways. Mm-hmm. So I want to take that framework and put it back on you as someone who comes from many generations of Washingtonians and a history of loggers. Mm-hmm. How do loggers see the issue of climate change and how have you sort of internalized that or thought about the logging industry? My family's work in the timber industry ended with my grandparents' generation and then my parents are not actively working in logging. They, they are music teachers, as I said. So I think about that more and just thinking, reflecting on my own background and what I'm bringing to this is that I... You know, my own story is one of, you know, participating in vast land use changes 
and also sort of the flip side of the coin is also feeling very connected to the land here. And I have not had active, I have not, you know, brought these pieces to logging towns. And so I can't speak to what the logging community says here. Fair enough. Yeah. I do have really interesting conversations though. So I, you know, I'm a doctoral student at the University of Washington and we have a labor union and we are part of the labor community in King County. And I am very active in a climate caucus there in which we have conversations across many different industries and workers and impacted industries. And that's a space that I find incredibly rewarding to have conversations with people like people in the maritime industry who have a really different perspective on this. It's a very fossil fuel intensive industry. You know, finding common ground. Like we both want to advocate for um, the economic interests of workers, but we also recognize that that people will be economically impacted by climate change. So these are places where there's some overlapping values, and also sometimes where there's conflict in the way that we want to address the impacts of climate change. And so, I encourage people to connect with civic communities and you know find spaces where they can have conversations, whether it's if they're you know, a member of a labor community or their church community or, you know, any other kind of civic network, that's a great place to get outside of our bubbles and have conversations with people and learn something different. Really, really rewarding too. Have you ever found that in, in speaking with some of these communities, like if you're, if you're working with people who work in fisheries, that it's, it's more than a job to them. It's not interchangeable with some, if there was like a green jobs, a retraining program, their family might be in fishing for a long time. And yes. I think asking them to give it up, like where does the um, like social justice angle, climate justice angle, how does it maybe interact with a problem like that? Mm -hmm. Social justice is so connected to climate change because it does have these massive human impacts that, you know, that, that really no, different impacts on communities depending on their level of resiliency and all sorts of things. To speak specifically about fishermen and fisherwomen, I was actually in conversation yesterday with an Alaska native. I'm doing a, a new collection of pieces building off of what we just listened to of Arctic pieces, but some of them will incorporate stories of um, human experience of climate change from people who live and work in the Arctic. And so Haley Hannah Stepton is one person who I met through University of Washington, but she now lives in Anchorage and she and her family are fishermen. And she was talking about how great her concerns are about food security. And it's not just from changes in fishing um, and, and fish supplies. It's also from um, summertime berry harvesting that they're seeing massive changes in um, local berries and they think it's related to warming winters there. So that's an area where economic security and food security are really intertwined. So, you know, you look around at different populations and the way that people are impacted is, you know, varies quite a bit. Here in King County, there's a coalition front and centered that works to represent communities of color. And they know that there's much higher asthma rates around highway corridors, right, where there's a lot more uh, particulate emissions. So these are different concerns from communities that need to be considered and addressed when we're thinking about the problems. Well, it sounds like your head and your heart are in the right place there. 
if you're making music about the Arctic, you should uh, see if you can get Sufjan Stevens in on making an Alaska album. Oh, man, that'd be incredible. <laughs> when, when's that coming? He stopped making the state albums, but maybe it's time to... We're coming for you, Sufjan. <laughs> That's never going to happen, but we would like that. Well, great. I guess if we someone wanted to find more of your music and, and learn more, is it is it at your website? Is that the best place to do so? You also have a great TEDx talk that we've seen. Yeah, I, I post a lot of my pieces up on my website, judytweet.com. People can go there to find samples of it. And that's T-W-E-D-T. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for being here with us. Thanks for being a totally new angle. It's nice to meet people who are creative because we talk to a lot of nerds. <laughs> uh, too many nerds. No, that's, it's a lot of scientists, policy people. I would farmers. say Ju- Judy is a nerd, too. Yeah, yeah, she, she, she fits yeah, the bill. You strike us as a nerd, too. They work really hard not to use a lot of jargon, though. <laughs> yeah, and successfully, it, it appears, too. Well, uh, thanks for being here, being something new. We're hoping that we can do more things like this in the future and uh thank you and if you like the show where you're looking at me to to chastise me but you didn't even know that i was going to do it if you like the show please subscribe give us a good rating tell your friends and thanks for being a fan of reversing climate change thanks so much for having me